lock the car doors, double check if you have your ticket, and let's get going. Don't forget to zip up that over-prepared backpack and make your way to the entrance. When you head through the gates, past the ticket counters, with the ever-cheerful greeters and into the park, it's like being transported into another world. You can smell turkey legs, churros, and Mickey Mouse-shaped soft pretzels. You start to wonder if 9am is too early to eat a corn dog, and somehow your hands are already sticky and you've only been there three minutes. You look around and start to smile. As much as you thought you might have grown out of it, it turns out that even now, years later, Disneyland is still the happiest place on earth. You see Donald Duck and you give each other a air high five. You ask Peter Pan where Mulan is, and he says that his friend is normally by Flower Mickey over there, but look out because the evil pirate hook could be anywhere. And everyone from the staff in the concession stands to the ride operators to the princes and princesses are all here to help you experience it. They say that you only get one chance to make a first impression. And the first impression of Disneyland might be one of the most magical experiences in the world. So it got us thinking, what makes a customer experience magical? How do you create magic? In this episode, we are going to talk about two very magical things. The first is the creation of Disneyland. And the second is bare metal computer servers. I don't think you can sell magic all day long. Magic is very hard. (laughs) But the idea that you can delight people and they can go, wow, that is better than I thought. That's really, really nice to hear. So please, stay seated and keep your arms and legs inside the ride at all times. And let's explore the wonderful world of customer experience and magic. Welcome to Often Imitated, a podcast about remarkable experiences from the past and how they inspire people to create great customer experiences today. This episode is all about having great first impressions with your customers by putting your best employees to work, how Disneyland has mastered that practice, and what CX leaders can learn from their example. In this episode, we talk to Jacob Smith, co-founder of Packet and VP at Equinix Metal about how his team is working to automate physical infrastructure and what that looks like now that they've been acquired by Equinix. But first, a word from our sponsors. Often Imitated is brought to you by the generous support of our friends at Oracle, creating data-powered, seamless marketing experiences that delight your customers. To learn more, go to oracle.com slash CX. When we think of a day at Disneyland, at least pre-COVID, although there is magic, splendor, and awe in what we experience, the logistics of the day haven't really changed much over the decades. You walk in, figure out your game plan for which rides to hit, obviously prioritizing going to Space Mountain, impulse buy a few carbs, and try to avoid spending money on clothes that you have to carry around all day. You watch the fireworks, you hold hand with every delirious member of your party, while you try to remember which Disney character was the name for your parking lot. But this routine comes from almost 70 years of fine-tuning what a day at the happiest place on Earth should look like. But Disneyland's first day was a bit of a disaster. Disneyland first opened on July 17, 1955. It was supposed to be open to invited guests as well as some press to broadcast the goings-on of the day. They sent out invitations to about 11,000 lucky people. Unfortunately, for 17,000 other people, the 
The tickets weren't too hard to counterfeit, and the gates were pretty easy to jump over. So right off the bat, it was going to be a mess of a day. Fortunately for those who stayed home, Ronald Reagan was one of the anchors who helped report on the whole event, and they hadn't yet mastered the art of cutting the cameras when things went south. The cameras showed a lot of guests tripping over camera cables and reporters kissing employees when they thought they were off air. Walt Disney himself made a few mistakes live while reading the plaque outside Tomorrowland and started talking to a technician off camera. Some of the news anchors were trying to pass the coverage to each other, but one got stuck on a pirate ship and lost his microphone. It was 101 degrees that day and the asphalt that had been poured that morning was still warm, so women were getting their high heels stuck in it all day. With that heat, you'd think that having beverages for the guests would be important, but since there was a local plumber strike going on, Disney had to choose between having working drinking fountains or running toilets. They logically chose to keep the restrooms functioning, but then there was a lot of negative publicity saying that once the opening was sponsored by Pepsi, it was all a ruse to make people to buy more pop. Needless to say, the first impression of Disneyland was less than stellar, but there was enough excitement that by 10 a.m. the next morning, there were already thousands of people in line to get into the park. Within the first 10 weeks, Disneyland attracted 1 million visitors. With the brand established, the magic was selling. More on the magic of Disneyland in a bit. Let's talk data centers and computer servers, which, to be honest, feel like magic to most of us. We wanted to talk to one of the leading minds in customer experience and computer servers, Jacob Smith, who co-founded Packet is the current VP of Bare Metal Strategy and Marketing at Equinix. So Packet is a startup that got going in 2014 with the idea of automating physical infrastructure. Our idea was, can we make it work for a developer no matter what it is or where it is or maybe even who owns it? So we got hacked on that in 2014 and grew a public cloud and edge cloud and all kinds of things around helping software developers use physical infrastructure. So in March of 2020, Packet was acquired by Equinix, which is the world's largest provider of data centers um, and connectivity. It handles just an enormous amount of the internet traffic every day and is really built around this idea of the network effect, of helping others connect. And so Packet became Equinix Metal in October of this year with the idea of bringing what we call interconnected bare metal to Equinix's global platform. And that basically means foundational infrastructure, very low level, automated for a developer, and then connected to Equinix's amazing and special network fabric that spans the world in 220 data centers. So Packet, which is now Equinix Metal, has perfected making lasting impressions on software developers around the world. But they started out having to figure out how to sell data centers to clients who have probably never heard of one before. So we, we got started really with a group of people who had, I'd like to say, it's like getting the band back together, right? A bunch of people who grew up in the first wave of Linux and, you know, cloud, you could call it cloud. Now it was probably called dedicated hosting then, <laughs> which was the early 2000s. That's sort of like post.com boom when things were st- starting to take off and people were building stuff, but it was generally people who never built it before. First time. And in 2013, 14, we started to look at what was next, because these cycles are really long. So it's was like, we should look at what 10 years from now looks like. And so the group of people we pulled together were often people who had built it the first time. So they literally grew up in it, charting new territory. If not truly innovative, they were just kind of young enough and foolish enough to be like, I bet I could get this Linux thing to work. 
on a server. <laughs> and that kind of native experience with the underlying technology, which is not rocket science, but still is about computers and systems, networks, comfort, understanding the difference between drives and how much of a certain type of memory can fit into a, a certain kind of server, all that kind of like just knowing your craft was really at the forefront of the people on our team. And so that's good because they were builders and we needed that. And in a way, they matched our customers, but there was a bigger idea there that when we looked 10 years out, we thought, well, the buyer's going to be different because there's less and less people who grew up uh, in the data center. And so that really framed, wow, we're going to have to figure out how to meet a buyer who's never been into a data center and doesn't want to with an experience that says, use the value in that. Use the physical hardware, use the network without abstraction, without making it any kind of easier. And so bridging that world really became the trick that I think has defined our product, I guess, and also our you know, customers' experience with us. Jacob has to work with clients who have never been to data centers and don't want to. Similarly, Walt Disney was trying to build something for people who wanted to be part of the Disney experience, but had nowhere to go. In the 1930s and 40s, Walt had started thinking of a way that he could make an in-person experience for his fans. People had written to him asking to see the animation studios, wanting to see the worlds of Alice, Snow White, Mickey, and Peter Pan. But Walt looked around and figured seeing people drawing in a studio wasn't exactly the magic fans were looking for. He had originally thought of building something next to the studio in Burbank and having the park be more educational. But once his ideas started flowing, he had his eyes on a 160-acre orange grove in Anaheim, California. Unfortunately, it would cost $17 million to complete the park, and Walt didn't have that kind of cash lying around yet. He ended up striking a deal with ABC. They would help finance the park, and Walt created a show called Disneyland to air on their station. It would air for an hour once a week and would market to the largest generation America had ever had, the baby boomers. And if we've learned anything from our Lee Iacocca story, it's that if you have a baby boomer close to a family's disposable income, then you're bound to make some good money. And that investment is still paying off now, seeing as though baby boomers go to Disneyland and now they bring their grandkids. Disneyland ended up being completed and ready to open a year and a day later. They had even added two more lanes to the California 101 freeway to accommodate the projected increase in traffic. Walt and his team had laid the groundwork for their park, and they were ready to make that magical first impression. Although we know that first day didn't go as planned, Walt and his team had the inspiration and drive to create an experience that is just as amazing today as it was back then. This shows us that being fiercely dedicated to your vision in the beginning can help your company have a lasting impact. But we did have a rallying cry at the beginning, which was we were really inspired to try to build a better internet. And that was very inspirational. And that seemed to attract the right people, but it wasn't sharp enough. And at some point over the years, we got down to being really proud that we were the cloud that knows your name. And just kind of humanizing our interactions with people was at the root of what we did, whether it was on live chat or in a, a ticket or using the portal or interacting with you in an event or just trying to be like, this isn't generic and it's not about only the technology that you buy from us. It's the experience that you get because we're partnering on a longer term journey. And I really don't think anyone says, maybe I should move my infrastructure to do some new provider I've never heard of today. They have to trust you. And so that sense of relationship building, I think really brought a lot more of my experience into the business. 
Having a personalized long-term relationship with your customer is invaluable and necessary. Most of us were pretty much born into a relationship with Disney movies, characters, and parks. And although some of us have moved on from that relationship a little more than others, that groundwork and trust is still there. Nowadays, Disney doesn't really need us to buy into their brand, because the people who raised us believed in the Disney magic before we were born. But for entrepreneurs and CX leaders, even though we know what our product can do and that it'll be amazing for customers, it can be hard to get them to buy into that brand initially. In fact, your product just might be hard to explain what it does in the first place, especially to investors. So we got this email and it must have been early 2016 and we were looking to raise our Series A. And so word gets out. And let me just tell you that people were banging down the door to talk to us, but that in the end, we only got one term sheet. So it wasn't there wasn't a wild success there, but in the end, we found the right one. But we got an email, LinkedIn thing that says, want to connect. And it was Michael Dell. Okay, real Michael Dell, fake Michael Dell. Ends up real Michael Dell. And hey, heard what you guys are doing. Can we talk? Okay, yes. <laughs> and so Zach, my brother, took the call. We only had, oh, I've only got five minutes, right? Of course, he's probably doing a lot of these. And he says, so what do you guys do again? And Zach, I thought, had a great line. He said, Michael, we sell servers to your kids which was an idea that of course was well suited to Michael Dell who makes a lot of servers. And I don't know how many you know people under the age of 30 buy servers. A lot of them rent servers <laughs> on the cloud. I mean, I know 12 year olds who have pretty good cloud bills, <laughs> but they don't buy servers in the same way. And that sense of bridging it from a marketing perspective, I tried to bridge the gap and I would say that we were trying to deliver the experience of the cloud on physical infrastructure or on bare metal or on, Whenever instead of what's the promise, what do you prioritize? And if you go in there talking speeds and feeds and saying, here's the best server you've ever had to someone who doesn't care about servers, which by the way, is most people, you're going to lose. But if you can go in there with something more value-based and more like an experience, that that was different. And at the time, and now it seems normal, it doesn't really matter. But in 2015, to be able to deploy 20 bare metal servers in a few minutes, that was magical. and I remember one of my truly software people, like not even like never hardware, it wasn't their thing, put their app on our infrastructure on these type three servers. And he said, what is this magic? You know, and I was like, it's just a server, but he had never actually deployed on anything but a virtual machine. And so the idea of having this crazy amount of IOPS on the disc and 100% consistent performance is like, what just happened to my app? It just got like five times faster. And it was like magic. And that's an important entry point. I don't think you can sell magic all day long. Magic is very hard. <laughs> but the idea that you can delight people and they can go, wow, that is better than I thought. That's really, really nice to hear. Getting your first customers is tough because you are convincing people to take a chance on something they don't have any experience with. But since your product is so new, it can feel like magic to them. Now, when you're on to your next group of customers, well, they just expect everything to work correctly. It was later when we got to more of the, I'd say, actual customers. That was harder. And so one thing I loved to watch was Friday nights, because still, up to this day, actually, Friday nights are our busiest day of the week for new customers, because people are like, I heard about that thing, I should give it a try. And so we actually shifted our entire support model and who was online on Friday night. Because before it was like, okay, everyone, 
all the serious work is gone. It's just the weekend now. And that's actually when the serious evaluation and serious first impressions would happen. So we would start to shift and listen and talk to them there and meet them there. And we started a Slack channel a couple of years ago in our community. That's a couple thousand people. And that's been a really nice way to get that feedback. This was a brilliant insight by Jacob and a hard one to make. Learning that new customers were using the products on Friday nights and then having the gumption to shift those customer success people to working on Friday nights is not an easy thing to do for a startup. When you find an avenue that your customers are engaging in, it's critical to adjust resources to strengthen that connection, especially when your product requires a bit of a try-before-you-buy scenario. The cloud is especially different in that you can adopt it, and frankly, you mainly adopt it before you buy it. You know, there are other tools that you can have trials on and you can do things, but it's, it's kind of high level and it's like infrastructure is really critical. And so you don't be like, well, the marketing looked good. We should try it. It's more like, let's try it and we'll see. And so the idea of adopting and getting into it and taking it far, you, you might spend some money along the way, but you're not buying. And I still, I still really have to, as we invite new people into our world, say, all that usage-based stuff and all that sort of early stuff, they might spend thousands or even tens of thousands of dollars, you know, a- adopting. And so what you have to do is you have to decide who you're going to meet them with at the front door, you know? And so we actually never called support support. We always called it success. And I, you know, basically tried to help people be as responsive as possible and as helpful as possible instead of salesy. You know, the idea is like, what do you need to know? How can I help you get there faster? And that mindset of success, um, I think, is especially important on Friday nights and especially important with highly, highly technical and usually just empowered users. And so, you know, to speak with them or have a chance to help them means you have to show up with someone who knows what they're talking about. So the quality is as important as the kind of structure around it. And I guess maybe that's the Disneyland approach, too. You're putting probably above average people at the front of the lines where they take your tickets. Well, it looks like Jacob took care of our transition for that quote. And it's a brilliant insight. Disneyland is notorious for putting talent in all their customer-facing positions. Disneyland is not a magical place when you lose your child or you slip and fall or anything bad happens. They put their top people in those roles to make sure that when things go wrong, you have a better experience, even if it isn't magical. When it comes to figuring out where to put your above average consumer facing employees, it's important to do an assessment of where in your customer experience cycle they need you the most. We put a customer success team uh, under marketing because we thought it would need to be closest to the front of the house, right? It's like over there. Now, if everything goes right, obviously you don't have problems, but you have to deal with that kind of escalation. But the idea was always like, We're building a platform, which means if it works, the people, quote unquote, supporting it are actually in sales. Like they're in the front of the house. They're not in the back of the house. I'm going to use the opera. And the back of the house has to make sure that's happened and everything gets done on time and the show starts. But the front of the house is all about that experience. And so we put, later we called them customer engineers, but let's just call them sysadmins into a small team of three of us. And we handled uh, until we had, I don't know, 15,000 users with three people. Now, that's not a scalable thing when customers are like Sprint and, you know, others. You have to build process and you have to build some other things there. But when we've moved it around, 
over time. But where it's always been most successful is when we recognize that customer success is a forward-facing kind of like um, there was a woman who ran in a digital ocean, Emmanuel Scala, and she called it your missionaries. That sense not of like, how do I get you to buy today? But it's like, how could I help you today? Because I really not just believe in this product, but I know this product. And meeting people with that energy, I think, is the best thing we ever did. And getting back to that at times when we move away from it always shows a lot of value. I love the phrase customer engineers. Funny enough, Disney storytellers are called Imagineers, the people who are illustrators, architects, engineers, lighting designers, show writers, and graphic designers. But all the employees at Disney parks around the world are called cast members. They're all part of the show, with the performance for the guests as the number one priority, whether you are selling Mickey ears or moving logs forward on Splash Mountain. And for 70 years, they've earned the trust of millions and millions of repeat guests who expect a magical performance. I think what we find when we dig into some of our best customers and also the customers who we're looking at is that sense of partnership long-term is not lightweight. I used to think a lot about how do we, how do we find and make connections with these people? But importantly, you have to also decide how you gain their trust, right? And sometimes that means you have to go through some bad stuff together. Like you have to have outages and respond. You have to have a problem that you, that you can show your stripes with. Because in the end, I think values, in addition to we talked about brand promise earlier, but like your values being upfront really helps you find the right customers and for them to be attracted to you. And those are hard to prove when everything's just good. You also have to prove it when things go like not good. You know, when they get the accidental $10,000 bill that hit their credit card, that's the kind of thing that you have to handle like just right. Your frontline customer engineers need to be ready for both the good days and the bad days. First impressions might happen once, but I would challenge CX leaders to create a plan for how to deal with the first bad impression. What happens when things break? How are your team members trained to react and respond? Someone once told me in marketing, don't try to be unique try to be special. And that's just that sense that you're just kind of going a little bit above for the person. I think that's part of our philosophy. It's really about understanding that we're building long-term relationships and that there's a lot of other good options and that people are trusting us with really foundational stuff, like really critical, (laughs) that they have to want to do it. And so in a way, like early on and still, we shied away from like, there was a poster on our wall at some point which was like $0 on Google AdWords, you know, which is like grow the company without spending any money on advertising. Now we've, you know, changed a little bit, but still every time we do that kind of, I'm not saying it's like wrong to get visibility. I think it's good that to show our creativity, to show our craft and put something into it. And obviously that's now part of modern marketing, but that sense of kind of show up is part and parcel to how we've thought about customer experience. Walt Disney's dedication to quality storytelling when he started creating animations in the 1920s is what cultivated the trusting relationship that's intact nearly a hundred years later. The first Disneyland was so unique that it is often imitated. Nowadays, Disney parks still have some things that would conceptually take your breath away, but they all share an experience that makes you feel special and helps you revisit the stories you love even if you're not a diehard fan. 
One thing that comes to mind for me with customer experience is you work all the time and hopefully it works and it shows in revenue and it shows in feedback and it shows in lots of ways. But one of the ways I've always loved it best is when you have someone who's not a customer, like who probably won't be a customer, says, I know those guys, they're pretty cool. That sense of you've done the work, not just with your customers, but you've gotten the word out there that, like I said, you're the cloud that knows their name or you're the ones who care about that stuff. That brand and customer experience are so tightly related now that they're kind of inescapable. The real magic that CX leaders can create is how they make their customers feel on good days and not so good days. And the best way to ensure that you do that is to put your best people on it. I promise it's worth it. Now, please don't get up until the ride has come to a complete stop. Make sure you have all your belongings with you before you exit and enjoy the rest of your day. Shoot, where were we parked again? This is your host, Ian Faison. Thank you for listening to another episode of Often Imitated. If you like what you're hearing, hit subscribe. If you really like it, give us a rating review. This podcast was narrated by me, Ian Faison, and produced by Mackie Wilson, Ezra Baker Trupiano, and Ben Wilson. This podcast is brought to you by the generous support of our friends at Oracle, creating data-powered, seamless marketing experiences that delight your customers. To learn more, go to oracle.com slash CX. Where were we parked? Gosh, was it, I think it was, was it the one that did the Phil Collins music? Can't remember. Ah, yep, Tarzan. It was Tarzan.